Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, described as the presumptive Pope of the Evangelicals, yet so little is known about the man who had won exceptional honors, was humble, articulate, and once even, well, controversial. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham, paying tribute to the Reverend John Robert Walmsley Stott, whether in the West or in the Third World. A hallmark of Stott's ministry has been expository preaching that addresses not only the hearts, but also the minds of contemporary men and women. Today's message is, What is Man? We come now to the second of our five fundamental questions, namely, what is man? In some ways, these three innocent monosyllables, what is man, constitute one of the most vital questions that any man or woman could ask. And this question urgently demands an answer, and that for two reasons. Firstly, because of its personal importance to us, to ask the question, what is man, is to ask, what am I? And what am I? What are you? Are we to spend the brief years of our sojourn on earth without bothering to find out an answer to this question? Are we to flit through life like a bird through a room, in at one window and out at the other, without finding a satisfactory answer to the question, what is man, what am I? What are the origin and the nature and the duty and the destiny of man? Where do we come from? Where are we going to? What are we in fact and what are we meant to be in theory? These questions are of personal importance to us. And the second reason why we must consider this question is because of its philosophical importance in our day. It's interesting that Professor J.S. Whale, in his book, uh, Christian Doctrine, writes ideologies, to use, he adds, the ugly modern jargon, ideologies are really anthropologies. That is, they concern the doctrine of man. And he also writes, this is the ultimate question behind the vast debate, the desperate struggles of our time. After all, one of the chief points of conflict between Karl Marx and Jesus Christ is in the doctrine of man. This is the real issue at stake also in those parts of the world where one race presumes to dominate another race. The question is, wherein lies the value of man? Is his value any relative, in relation, that is, to the state, who can control and use him to further its own totalitarian ends, as if man were just a dead cog in a vast machine. Do we believe that? Or has man some intrinsic value? Is his value to be found not in relation to the state, but in himself, because he was created by God in the image of God? so that he's to be understood in relation to God and not in relation to the state, and he's to be respected for himself 
and not for his usefulness to the state or to anybody else. Well, what is man? What was the teaching of Jesus? That's what concerns me as a Christian. And for answer, I want to read you some words of his that are recorded by Matthew and and Mark, and I want to take the Markan version, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, and I shall read verses 20 to 23. Here they are, Mark 7, 20. And Jesus said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now what is immediately striking in these verses is that in speaking of man, Jesus speaks of his sin, because sin is the most obvious characteristic of man. Oh, it's quite true, as Jesus and the Apostles say elsewhere, that sin is not the only mark of man. Though fallen far from the original state of righteousness in which he was created, man still retains vestiges of the full and glorious image that he once bore. Man still has rational and moral and spiritual qualities. They're grievously impaired by sin, but they still bear witness to the image of God that he bears, and they distinguish man from the animal creation. And this divine image is man's nobility, man's dignity, man's glory. So you see, Christianity is not like Stoicism, a religion of despair. It's not a man-hating, man-abandoning faith. It says that there is hope for man's salvation, not in man himself, but in God's fathomless mercy. Nevertheless, if man has a certain dignity in that he was created in the image of God, he is also miserably degraded in his sin and self-centeredness. Surely we cannot follow Rousseau, who believed, as others have believed, in the fundamental goodness of man. Nor can we apply the theory of evolution to the realm of ethics and believe in the inevitability of man's moral progress. Nor are we so foolish as to suppose that man's ills are due to his ignorance or to his environment, and that, given a little more education, and better social welfare, the ills of man will be remedied. No, no. You and I have witnessed in this century two devastating, catastrophic world wars, and civilization is limping dangerously near the terrifying precipice of a third. Why, we've only got to see around in our own country the outbreak of crime and violence and bestiality Today, it should disturb the most complacent among us. So far, then, we have tried to see, by way of introduction, that the Christian faith avoids the extreme views and estimates of man which have been espoused by various systems. 
Christians are neither blind optimists on the one hand, believing in the fundamental goodness of man, nor are they black pessimists on the other, believing in the irredeemable wickedness of man. No, Christians are sober realists, deriving their estimate of man not only from their own fallible observations, but from the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus teach about man? Well, let me quote again. Mark 7.20 That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed all these things, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, etc. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now let's look at these verses together. And I think we may find here three truths about man and his sin taught quite plainly by Jesus. And the first is the universal extent of human sin. That is to say, all men are sinners. I'm sure uh, you won't have failed to notice that the word man occurs four times in the passage I've read to you. Verse 20, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within out of the heart of men. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Now, I lay emphasis on this, on this fourfold repetition of, of the word man, because it's quite clear that Jesus is not here giving us the portrait of some notorious evildoer, but rather the portrait of every man, of you and me. These verses don't give a description of some primitive tribe sunk in the darkness and degradation of heathenism. No, we have here the description of cultured people, refined people, religious people. For Jesus is not here conversing with harlots and publicans and sinners. This is part of a debate with the Pharisees, who were the most religious and educated and refined people of the day. And it's to them that Jesus said, out of the heart of men proceed, etc. In a word, within the soil of every man's heart, Jesus taught, there lie buried the ugly seeds of every conceivable sin and vice. And our Lord gives a list of 13 of them here. Sometimes in the plural, when he's stressing repeated impulses or acts. Sometimes in the singular, when his stress is on the sinful tendency or propensity or quality. But all of them are called, in verse 23, these evil things. And that, although it's a distasteful task, I'm afraid we must spend a little time looking at some of these things. And the first, verse 21, is, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed, what comes first? Evil thoughts. Now, it's very striking that our Lord begins there. He doesn't begin with words or deeds. He begins with thoughts. And Professor Sweet writes in his great commentary on St. Mark's Gospel, the commission of any sin is preceded by deliberation, however rapid, in the mind of the sinner. And the Sermon on the Mount made plain that God's laws can be broken in, in thought, 
and not just in word and deed. And so I must ask you, have you control of your thoughts? What pictures hang on the walls of your mind? What hideous spectres haunt the rooms of your imagination? Evil thoughts. And then next, Jesus mentions all five of the commandments of the second table of the law, that is, the, the second lot of five commandments, adultery, murder, theft, false witness, and covetousness, are all now mentioned. Adultery. Actually, three words in his catalogue refer to that most imperious tyrant called sex, whose battlefield is strewn with grim casualties. And these three words are adultery, fornication, and lasciviousness. Adultery, of course, is the word strictly used to describe uh, immorality committed by married people. Fornication, on the other, is immorality between unmarried people, and it includes all unlawful sexual behavior. All sex relations between men and women before or outside marriage. It includes perverted sexual behavior and solitary sexual sin. And then lasciviousness. The Greek word seems to describe not secret sexual practices, but public indecency, such as we see increasingly in our society today. We walk along the streets of this great city of London or any of the great cities of the world, and certainly of our own country, and we see these lewd posters and hoardings staring us in the face, forcing themselves upon our eyes and our mind. And I believe that God is saying to England today, as he said to Judah and Jerusalem years ago, Ah, shameless nation! Have we no sense of shame and decency that we permit these things? And I know what we do. We gloss over them with our devilish camouflage. Hmm, it's natural, we say. Or a little sex experimentation is necessary. Or it's universal. Everybody does it. And so we glamorize these things. We even call it love. But it isn't love outside the true married relationship. And Jesus called these things adultery, fornication, lasciviousness. He said these are evil things. And God says thou shalt not commit adultery. And our Lord Jesus Christ added that if any man even looks after a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then next, murders. I cannot stay on this, except to remind you that again in the Sermon on the Mount he said that the thought was as bad as the act, and thou shalt do no murder includes spite and temper and revenge and bearing resentment and animosity in one's heart. Next, thefts. It's in the plural in the Greek. Stealing is extraordinarily common in our civilization today. The frontier between what's mine and what belongs to somebody else is obscured, especially if somebody else is a public body, like the government, for instance. Why, to fiddle your income tax return or to scrounge from the government is thought by some people to be smart. But God says, thou shalt not steal. 
Next, covetousness, or as it is in the Greek, covetousness is. It's plural again. Professor Sweet calls them impulses or acts of self-seeking. And Jesus said, beware of covetousness. Now, covetousness is not a deed, it's a disposition. It's a lust, often born of vanity, a lust to possess somebody else's wealth or somebody else's fame or somebody else's success, vainglory leading to covetousness. Next, blasphemies, or as the word really means, slanders, speaking evil of people, false witness. And this covers the spreading of untrue rumors, malicious gossip, the sins of the uncontrolled tongue. There then, so far, are these five commandments at the end of the law. Murder, theft, adultery, false witness, covetousness. And we must hurry on just mentioning some of the others in this catalogue that Jesus lists. Wickednesses, that is, acts of malice. Next, in the middle of verse 22, deceit. Now I must pause on that. How few men and women there are today who live one life and live it in the open. I believe more and more that most people are double-faced. They wear a mask. They're not real people. They're hypocrites to varying degrees. And there are some people who weave such a tissue of lies round themselves that for years they pretend to be somebody different from what they really are. Thank God that it's written of the Lord Jesus that he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. There was no guile. Jesus was utterly guileless, transparent, open. And the Christian is said that, that it is said of the Christian that he must be girt about with truth. The Christian must walk in the light, humbly open, absolutely sincere. Then next in the list, in verse 22, is an evil eye, that is jealousy, the green devil, the most vile and destructive of all sins, not only disrupting our relationships, but poisoning our whole mind and outlook. Then pride, the root of all sin, pride which is the desire to give up being a dependent creature and become like God. This is the sin of Adam and Eve. You shall be like God, independent, self-sufficient, no longer dependent. And this is a great sin of pride. Next, foolishness. That is the folly of the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. As Professor Sweet says, the short-sightedness and wrong-headedness of unbelief and sin. Here is the folly of those who are such materialists that they've never even sought after God. And I wonder how many people there are who are kept from commitment to Christ by honest, genuine intellectual doubt or difficulty. Very, very few, I believe. Most people are kept by sin, not genuine intellectual doubt. Well, I must stay no longer on this grisly catalogue. All these thirteen things, Jesus said, are evil things, verse 23. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just list them as a fact, a universal fact. 
he goes on to tell us both their cause and their effect. Their cause, where they come from, is the heart. And their effect, what they lead to, is defilement. Now let's look at these two things. We thought of the universal extent of human sin. Now secondly, the inward origin of human sin, the heart. The Pharisees, with whom Jesus was debating at this time, had a purely external view both of religion and of morality. They were concerned with ceremonial exactitude, the washing of cups and pots and vessels, and strict observance of rules about clean and unclean food. The horizon of these Pharisees was bounded by rules and regulations and laws and ceremonies. And Jesus taught that what defiles a man is not the food that goes into him, but the sins which come out of him. And that what really matters in the sight of God is not external ceremonial regulations, but inward moral purity. It's the heart that matters. And the heart is evil. That's what Jesus says. Verse 21, from within, out of the heart of men proceed all these things. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within. So then, the Lord Jesus taught that the evil things which men think and do and say are due primarily not to environment, not to the, our habits which we've uh, developed from the bad example people set us or the bad company we keep, important as those are, but these things come from our heart, from our inward corruption. And the whole scripture teaches this, that the heart is corrupt. For instance, Psalm 36.1, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah is the great prophet of the human heart. One of his favorite phrases, which comes again and again as a refrain in the prophecy, is the stubbornness of their evil heart. We don't need only to turn to scripture to know this. Modern psychoanalysis teaches it too. The psychoanalyst has uncovered the horrid secrets of the human heart. And we know very well today that the mind or heart of man is like a deep well. Normally, the thick deposit of mud at the bottom of the well is out of sight. But when the waters are stirred, the most evil-looking, evil-smelling filth breaks the surface. Lust, jealousy, deceit, pride, spite. These base passions of which Jesus speak, speaks here, they keep bubbling up from the secret springs of our heart. And I'm sure of this, that if we've got any moral sensitivity left at all, there are times when we must be appalled and shocked and disgusted by the foul sins which lurk in the hidden depths of our human personality. And this is simply what Jesus teaches. Out of the heart proceed these things. The inward source of human sin. And now thirdly, Jesus also taught the defiling effect of human sin. Verse 20, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. 
Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. These evil things that we have considered render us unclean in the sight of God. Indeed, they so soil and stain our lives as to render us wholly unfit to stand before God. But God is holy and clean and pure. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot look on iniquity. And in God's sight, we are an unclean thing. All of us are God's untouchables. And it's written in Scripture, nothing unclean shall enter the heavenly Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean shall enter it. Nothing. Nothing unclean enters the presence of God today, let alone on the last day. And it isn't the petty external things which disqualify us from entering God's presence, like diet or dress or convention or ceremonial. It's sin. Sin is the only thing that defiles us and renders us unfit for the presence of God. The universal extent of human sin, the inward source of human sin, and the defiling effect of human sin. Man's great need is thus laid bare by the plain, direct, unvarnished teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. Our sins, he says, proceed from our heart, our evil and corrupt heart, and so we need a new heart, if it's possible. And again, Jesus said, our sins defile us. So we need to be cleansed, if it's possible. We need to cry as David cried after he'd committed adultery and murder and, and covetousness and these other sins. He cried first, create in me a clean heart, O God. And secondly, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He recognized his need of a new heart and of cleansing. Now these two things, cleansing from defilement and a new heart, are offered us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cleansing to render us fit to stand before a holy God and a new heart with new desires and new aspirations and a new outlook so that we may lead a holy and a righteous life. And you know it's a wonderful thing that these two things are even promised us in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, for instance, 33 and 34, God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. In other words, I'll give them a new heart in which my law is written and then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's cleansing. Or again, take Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. Isn't that wonderful? Cleansing and a new heart. Now these promises given us way back in the Old Testament by God through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, these promises have been fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. First he died to cleanse us from all our sins. 1 John 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, that is, the merit and virtue and power of his death cleanses us from all sin. And there's no other way of cleansing. 
Our sins are so offensive to God, so foully defiling, that nothing could eradicate the stain of them but the blood of Christ, the merit of his death. And Jesus, in his great love, bore our sins in his own body. He accepted the penalty and condemnation that our sins deserved. And if we cast ourselves upon his mercy, we shall be washed whiter than snow. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul said, Such were some of you sinners, but you are washed, but you are clean. And of this heavenly washing, baptism is the outward sign and seal. Oh, I'm afraid there are some washed with the waters of baptism who've never been cleansed from the defilement of sin. Baptism does not convey this cleansing, but it signifies it. And Jesus died to cleanse us. But he didn't only die, he rose again. He lives. And by his Spirit, he can enter into our personality and give us a new heart. Indeed, it's written, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, behold, all things have become new. Now this is the miracle of the new birth, of which again, baptism is the outward and visible sign. For Christian baptism is the outward and visible sign, both of cleansing from sin and of regeneration of the new birth, getting a new heart. Isn't all that just what you're needing? Cleansing from the defilement of sin and the gift of a new heart? Then tell me, have you come as a sinner to Jesus? Have you asked him to cleanse you by his blood, the merit of his death? Have you asked him to come in and dwell in your personality, giving you a new heart and making a, you a new creation? He can, if you ask him to. And I venture to say that no man can understand the true doctrine of man until he's been made a new man in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.